My name is James Walker, and I've been a detective for over a decade. I've seen my fair share of crime and violence, but nothing prepared me for what I encountered in the quiet neighborhood of Willow Creek. This is my story. It started with a series of unexplained violent incidents that plagued the once peaceful community. My partner, Laura Hill, and I were assigned to investigate the situation. At first, we thought it might have been a gang dispute or a turf war, but as we delved deeper into the case, we found that the perpetrators were seemingly ordinary citizens with no previous criminal records. We were puzzled, to say the least. What could have driven these law-abiding citizens to commit such heinous acts? As we interviewed witnesses and dug into the lives of the assailants, we began to notice a pattern. Each person had experienced a sudden and inexplicable personality change shortly before committing the violent acts. As a detective, I've always relied on facts and evidence, but I couldn't shake the nagging feeling that something more sinister was at play. Laura and I decided to consult a local expert in the paranormal, Dr. Evelyn Martin, in hopes of finding an explanation for these bizarre occurrences. Dr. Martin listened intently as we recounted the details of our investigation. When we had finished, she shared her theory. She believed that an ancient and powerful entity had somehow found its way to Willow Creek and was possessing the townspeople, forcing them to act on their darkest impulses. I have to admit, I was skeptical. But as we continued our investigation, we found more and more evidence that supported Dr. Martin's theory. We discovered a series of strange symbols etched into the walls of the victims' homes and learned that these symbols were part of a long-forgotten ritual used to summon and control the malevolent force. Laura and I realized that we were in a race against time. If we didn't find a way to break the dark spell and banish the entity, the entire neighborhood would descend into chaos. Dr. Martin provided us with a counter-ritual, one that would sever the connection between the entity and its victims. It was risky, and we had no guarantees that it would work, but it was the only option we had. We decided to perform the ritual in the center of Willow Creek, where the power of the entity seemed to be the strongest. As we chanted the ancient words, the air around us began to crackle with energy. The ground tremored beneath our feet, and a sense of unease filled the air. But we pressed on, determined to save the people of Willow Creek. As we reached the climax of the ritual, a deafening roar echoed through the night, and the oppressive atmosphere that had haunted the neighborhood lifted. We knew that we had succeeded in breaking the dark spell. In the days that followed, the possessed townspeople returned to their normal selves, with no memory of the violence they had committed. Willow Creek was once again a peaceful and thriving community. This case changed me. It forced me to confront the limits of my understanding and taught me that sometimes, the greatest threats come from places we cannot see or comprehend. And while the entity may have been banished from Willow Creek, I know that there are other forces out there, lurking in the shadows, waiting for their chance to strike. I am an amateur rock hound. I was at a basalt lava flow cut through by the river. It was one of my favorite spots. I was there with my dog, a border collie. I was picking the rock looking for opal and agate. It was getting late and the sun was going down. 
I had lost track of time and didn't want to hike out in the dark so I quickly gathered my stuff, threw it into my backpack called my dog who was laying down chewing a stick and started out. I was in a clearing, all flat rock, and there was a small log jam and brush to go over to get on the trail. I had a .38 revolver in my hand. I've came over a log jam once only to scare a six-point elk on the other side. I've encountered bear in the area as well. My dog jumped up onto the logs and I was right behind him. He stopped and started growling. He was quiet and shaking. He was staring to my left. I slowly looked up to my left and there it was standing still halfway behind a tree. About seven feet tall, black, and still and quiet and about thirty feet from me. I looked back down at my dog and he was frozen. All I could think of is I gotta get out of here now. I gave him a nudge with my knee and he wouldn't move so I went around him, got on the trail to my right and my dog followed. I walked 100 feet as fast as I could without running thinking the whole time that's not what I think it is. Then an overpowering smell came over me. It smelled like rotten fish, garbage, and shit in a bag and then putting your face in it. I've never smelled something that nasty before. At that point I'm thinking that is what I'm thinking it is. I.e. heard that they smell. I have never been so scared in my life. I can't describe the feeling. I just keep walking as fast as I could without running. Then I heard it. It was behind me grunting. It was like a teenage boy's voice at puberty. It was going B-A-B-A. Not real loud, but I knew it was following me. I couldn't look back. The smell was gone, but I could hear it still right behind me. This was a mile down the trail. Then the smell came back real strong and I looked over my shoulder. It was standing in a clear spot next to the river on a bend. Behind it was the white water and rocks. It was standing there still. Its arms were past its knees, real broad shoulders. At this point about 50, 60 yards back. I couldn't bring myself to look at its face. It followed me for another half mile judging by the grunts and crashing through the ferns. Then I finally made it to my truck, got in, locked the doors and got the hell out of there. I forgot I had a pistol in my hand. That's how scared I was. I've been back in the woods one time since, and not alone. I used to explore the woods two to three times a week. No more. I was around 12 or 13 and in middle school at the time waiting around at the bus stop the sun was rising. I was mindlessly looking around when I caught a glimpse of something quite large in a tall tree. It looked heavy set and I could make out wings. I saw it move a little and I freaked out, set out to run and then I saw the bus. I turned around and the creature was gone. I figured I had totally imagined the whole thing. I was very tired it was early whatever. Fast forward a few weeks and it's about 9 p.m. and dark outside. I'm in my room watching TV when all of a sudden I hear banging on my window and yelling. I look out my window to see my best friend. I open the window and like a crazy person climbs through telling me to close the window. Turns out he claimed to have saw something in the park huge with wings and it was chasing him from the park. The park was a short walk from my house less than 10 minutes. 
This is the last time I hear about the creature until my sister called me a month or so ago and was asking me about the creature I saw. I told her it was years ago, I don't remember a whole hell of a lot about it and I figure I hallucinated it or just plain made it up. She starts telling me about a story her husband was telling her about a flying creature that chased him and his friends at that same park in the middle of the night. What he recounted seemed pretty accurate to my experience. To the best of my knowledge the creature reminded me of a gargoyle. I can try to recount more or get more info from my brother-in-law if there's any interest. It was late at night and my husband and I fell asleep watching TV in the living room. We always slept with the windows open at night for the fresh air and this being a particularly warm night we did just that. We never worried about prowlers since the neighbors had dogs and went off like alarms anytime something uncommon happened. We'd been there for about three weeks and noticed that the cows in the nearby, backyard, field were always acting nuts at night. They would quite often for no apparent reason start making noises like they were very frightened. I've grown up around farms and know that cows don't act this way for no reason. I found it a little unnerving when I found out from Needbers that cougars sometimes frequented the area too. So, needless to say I kinda thought maybe the cougars were making the cows crazy. Taunting them? Well, when I woke up around 2.30am I didn't really know what woke me, that's when I heard the most thunderous roar slash scream slash grunting like holler AR whatever people want to call it. It was a deep, throaty, and loud. It was so loud I could have sworn it was in the house. I tried to wake my husband while I stared intently at the window thinking maybe I would catch a glimpse of it, not really wanting to though. It continued screaming in short angry bursts a couple more times. I say angry because it sounded so mean. Like ferocious. I also heard another less intense but painful sounding shriek in the midst of its deafening roar. I was so terrified it was if time stood still. You know that adrenaline rush you get when something freaky happens? Almost like it can't possibly be true. The thing I've never been able to forget is the scream, and I've yet to be able to explain the way it sounded. I don't believe it could be mimicked by any other man or animal. It was as unique as it was terrifying. All of our cats disappeared. We had three cats. I always saw our neighbor's cats though, and they were outside cats. It just struck me as odd. We gave up on having pets after two months. Sometimes at night we would hear load thumps outside our bedroom wall. A few times my husband actually went for his rifle because he thought someone was outside in his shop. We finally moved to a place in the city, far from wooded areas. At least I can go when I want to, and the things don't come to me. I grew up in the small Lincolnshire hamlet of Branston Booths, named in legislation as a nitrate-sensitive area. It had a pub, an old wooden village hall, and a chapel, but no church or shop. What it lacked in amenities, however, it more than made up for in attractions for adventurous children, such as a mysterious island surrounded by a moat, a stretch of woodland with some old but occasionally inhabited caravans in the midst of it always the operations center for international crimes in our imagination, and a body of reedy water known locally as the Delph.
This waterway ran straight from the main crossroads at the booths, via an intersection with the car dike, to the Sinsel drain, ultimately feeding the county's main watercourse, the River Witham. The Delph has high grassy banks on either side, accessed from the crossroads by the car dike's own bank, which runs crossways to meet them and provides a bridge between the car dike and the Delph. The first Delph bank is about 10 meters, 33 feet, away from the crossroads access point. One summer's evening in 1985, as the day was slowly turning to night, I was with my band of adventurers at the crossroads. There were five of us, aged 12 to 14, chatting idly, with the Delph and bank tops, and fields beyond, as our backdrop. Three had their backs to the Delph, I was facing it, and a friend, Daryl, was standing to my right on a slight diagonal so that he was able to turn to me and then to our friends during the conversation, giving him a broader view than the rest of us. We were on the point of saying our goodbyes when something caught my eye. A head had popped up over the first Delft bank top, and as I turned to register it, my mind was troubled. Was this a rabbit-faced man or a man-faced rabbit? And with that, the head, on a pair of non-rabbit-sized shoulders, shot hack down behind the bank. Open-mouthed, I looked to Daryl, who had a similar expression, and we both said in excited unison, Did you see that? We tried desperately to explain what we had seen to our friends. Daryl found it difficult to articulate, perhaps because of the angle at which he saw it, other than describing this human or animal thing popping up and shooting back down again. We searched along the banks to see if it was still there. We found nothing, but, if truth be told, we didn't look very hard. It was a terrifying encounter, but mercifully short. My friends were nonplussed, you just saw a big hare or rabbit, but Daryl had seen what I had seen, and he just shook his head. Over the years, I have sought to explain this away as a trick of the crepuscular light, but why would it trick two people in the same way, as a larger than normal animal? But I have seen enough rabbits and hares to know that they do not pop up in that way, or have human-like shoulders, or as a person playing a prank, doubtful, given that it is one of those places where everybody knows everybody else, and we would definitely have heard about it later. Was the entity, perhaps, a cousin of the giant rabbits of the mythical island of High Brazil? I have also wondered about whether I had already seen the Wicker Man and was simply imagining a man with an animal head mask popping into the shot, as they do most memorably in the film, but had Daryl seen that film too and had he really been having the same thoughts as me? None of these strike me as satisfactory explanations, I definitely saw something strange that night and it has stayed with me ever since. We didn't mention it again within our group, and while I have always looked at those banks hoping to catch another glimpse, None has been forthcoming. I lost touch with Daryl when I went to university and he moved from Branston Booths, and I hope he sees this account. It is the first time I have written it down and would welcome his and any other reflections on this brief encounter. A few years back, I was leaving a friend's house late at night. His house was in the middle of some random farming area in Tampa Bay, Florida, more specifically Claremel if you're familiar. My friend's fiancé was giving me a lift home and as we were taking a left onto a long, dark road, in an equally dark area, there were few street lights or house lights, 
The headlights of his car lit up the front yard of a corner house. As we were turning, we both saw something fall from a tree in their yard. It looked like a person. Sort of. I know how illegitimate this is going to sound, but it looked like that seriously creepy ice cream man from Legion. It was tall, had long limbs, pale, super thin. It landed on its feet, but it kind of looked like it also landed on its knuckles, almost like a monkey would. But we only saw the backslash side of it, and very briefly. My friend's fiancé was a no-bullshit kind of guy and doesn't believe it weird stuff at all. So when he freaked out, I freaked out too. I made him turn around and go back to see what the hell it was. By the time we turned back, it was gone and after a few years he now denies it ever happening. What in God's name was that thing? I've never seen anything like it before or after. Has anyone else ever experienced anything like this? I am living very rural, in a small village with maybe 10 to 15 houses, but close to the highway, you can drive there within maybe 5 minutes, and also about 10 minutes away from the town. If you cross the street, it just takes you about 10 minute walk to reach the forest. First Christmas Day In the afternoon, my partner and I decided to go for a little digestive walk, as we were really stuffed from all the food. It was about 17 and already dark when we left, and we had a big and bright LED flashlight with us. I also took my camera and my flash, as I love taking pictures of nature at night. We decided to walk on a little country road towards the forest and then turn right, following a small graveled cycle track close to the forest border, which connects our village and the next, maybe 15 to 20 minutes walk between villages. In the middle part of the track, you have to walk through a small bit of forest. It's rather dark and the trees are very high and quite dense. When we entered, I saw our flashlight reflecting on something and recognized a car being parked there on the side of the track, close to the trees. This struck me as odd, as cars are not allowed to drive there and the path is very narrow and hidden, so I was a bit cautious. My partner pointed the light inside of the car and it seemed to be empty. I also noticed the windows were frozen, so it must have been parking there for a while. A bit in front of the car I spotted a tree with an intriguing structure, and I asked my partner to point the flashlight towards it, so I could focus better and photograph it with my flash. After I took a few images, my partner told me, um, there is someone standing behind us in the middle of the road, he is looking at us. Nobody was following us the whole way, I kept looking around and behind us occasionally, because at this time in the evening and close to the border of the forest there are boars sometimes, and it's mating season, so they are more aggressive than usual. Indeed there was a man standing behind us, staying out of the flashlight's reach. He wasn't saying anything, just standing there and facing us. At first, I thought he might be startled, as it may seem a bit weird if someone's just taking photos around your car, it was not even legal to drive on that path with the car. I decided to get up and confront him from a distance, explaining to him that I was just taking photos of that tree. He didn't react and still just stood there. I then went on to ask him if he needed some light, and he replied that this wasn't necessary. It was odd, but I was still calm, 
sure about there being a normal explanation for his behavior. Nonetheless, my partner and I decided to just get the F out and followed the path leading to the next village. It was maybe five to seven minutes until we reached it. I remembered the letters on his license plate, not the numbers though, unfortunately, and googled it, and it turned out that he was from a city about 6h away from our village. Mind you, the country I live in is in a very strict lockdown right now, so you are only allowed to travel, even by car, if you have very urgent reasons. After we reached the first lantern of the next village, we looked back and observed the car driving a bit out of the forest, turning around, and going back inside. I was able to see that he parked there again and turned the lights off, he didn't leave the forest. We then went home on a much longer way than initially intended, as I didn't want to go back there for obvious reasons. Our flashlight battery died on the way and my phone battery was low, so I didn't want to call the police back then, but I called them as soon as I arrived home and gave them all the details, big regret that I didn't memorize the whole license plate, but it was just so surprising that I seriously didn't think about it. Also, it only occurred to me as really strange when I thought about the frozen windows and that he could impossibly have walked behind us plus him having no light and not responding. He did seem to be sneaking up on us when I sat down to take the photo. I think I was very lucky to have my partner, the camera, and the bright light with me. I don't want to imagine what could have happened if I was alone. So, creepy guy sneaking around in the forest, let's not meet. Edit. When I told my housemate, she theorized that he may have been spying on the houses very close to the forest border, as you can easily look into their backyards without being seen, you have to walk a bit up the hill and further, about five minutes. I think it's likely. I had the thought of photographing the car when I entered the forest part of the path, but somehow I felt unwell about it and decided to not do it, despite it being an interesting scene. In hindsight, I believe this saved me, as he must have hidden behind the trees close to the car and forest entrance. If he was really planning a burglary, or worse dumping a body, I think it's not unlikely he may have attacked me if he realized I had a potential photo of his car with a recognizable license plate. This is a Bigfoot encounter told to me by my grandfather. It happened in the early fall of 1938. He and his friends did a backpacking trip to a small remote lake near Mount St. Helens. They did this annually. One year they even summit the volcano during their yearly camping trip. This particular year there were five of them. The hike end took a couple of days back then. There weren't as many dirt roads built as there are now. They chose late summer and early fall when the berries were in season and the fish were usually biting well because they did not want to pack much food. It helped to lighten the load of their heavy backpacks. My grandfather was a little over 20 years old during this backpacking trip. After the two-day hike to the lake, they set up camp and decided the next morning that my grandfather and another guy would try to catch some fish. The other three young men would go collect berries. The next morning they did just that. My grandfather walked to the far side of the lake and his friend was on the side nearer to camp. The fish were biting and he had caught a few when all of a sudden he started to feel uneasy as if he were being watched. 
the hair on the back of his neck seemed to stand on end, and then he got a whiff of a foul rotting stench. He started to look around, and directly behind him only 20 to 30 feet away were three giant human-like creatures covered in dark brown hair from head to toe standing at the tree line. My grandfather was a large man around 6 feet 4 and the smallest of the three creatures was just as tall as him, however, it was much wider at the shoulders and much thicker. According to what he was looking at the next creature was a foot taller and then the third was even a foot taller than that one putting each of them at six feet or better. The next one was over seven feet and the other one was over eight feet tall. He was overwhelmed with adrenaline from fear and panic. He wanted to run, however, these three giants staring at him were blocking the only direction that he could run. The only way he could get away would be to leap into the lake and swim. He decided his best option was to calm down and keep doing what he was doing. He cast in his line and began to fish again. Shortly after that, he caught another nice trout, and while reeling it in it dawned on him that these creatures may be here for his fish. He unhooked the trout and tossed it to them. The smallest of the three stepped away from the tree line and retrieved the trout and brought it back to the other two. So he continued to toss fish to them. The smaller the three Bigfoot continued to retrieve the trout. After a while, he landed a really nice fourth trout. He went to toss it back to them, but they were gone. He then grabbed his equipment and ran around the lake in the direction of the other friend. After finding him he said that they need to get the hell out of there and began to tell him what happened as they headed back to camp. When they got to camp the other friends were already there picking up camp gear and in a hurry. They stated that they ran across three giant hairy creatures while out berry hunting. It took the group only a day to hike back out downhill. They did not know what they had encountered. They had never heard of anything like that in the 1930s since the term Bigfoot had not been known. After that trip, they never went back to Mount St. Helens. They changed the location of their yearly backpacking trip. My grandfather stated it wasn't until the 1967 Patterson or Gimlin Bigfoot film was shown in theaters across the nation that he finally had a name for the three giant creatures he had a close encounter with. I moved in with my boyfriend a few months ago. We live in Atlanta. One night we were laying in bed and I heard a sound I never heard before. It sounded like a cougar mixed with a human scream. It's so hard to describe. I said, did you hear that? He said, no, leave it alone. At first, when I heard it, I thought it was a hurt animal and I was concerned and also just wanted to know what could possibly make that sound. It made the sound three times and stopped after my boyfriend told me to stop talking about it. The thing I can't wrap my head around is there are no woods nearby. Even if it was a cougar, how did it get in the middle of a major city without being reported or spotted? My husband was driving down South Carolina back roads and he encountered something strange. He describes it as a large dog that's all black and cast no shadow, with the red reflective eyes of a creature in headlights. It looked like it was a void, shaped like a canine, with the eyes. He avoided it and kept driving, 
but Senny saw the eyes in his rearview mirror for three miles, keeping pace with his car at 60 miles per hour. The only thing I can think of that's somewhat similar is the not deer, but it's not close enough. I don't know, just looking for some theories on what that was. I won't name the exact place for fear someone might try and go there and find her. I can't be responsible for that. I didn't want to go at first. I begged, pleaded, maybe even cried a little but my friends Eric and Jimmy were going and that was the sword my parents used to cleave through my complaints. You'll be with your friends. It's only a few weeks and it'll be a good experience for you to be a little independent for once, my mom said. Independence. Hell yes, just not at a stupid sleepaway camp. Drop-off was on a Sunday. The air was thick and spongy, a hazy sky-threatening rain, basically your typical August sweat fest. My younger brother Maddie had a fever the night before and with my dad working, my mom couldn't leave him so I had to catch a ride with Eric. I remember accusing Maddie of being a little baby and lying about being sick just to get attention, Something not uncommon in our house, but on this occasion completely untrue, which of course infuriated my mom. She rarely yelled, but for some reason this seemed to penetrate her calm and she exploded on me. Looking back it wasn't about Maddie, it wasn't about my mom, it was about me. I was afraid. Afraid of something new. Something different. Something unknown. Eric was slightly more excited about the camp than I was. Of the three of us he had the sunniest disposition. Nothing really ever bothered him. I think that was especially true that summer because he knew he was leaving our small town and going to boarding school next year. His dad was a big ad exec who commuted to the city, something mostly unheard of where we lived and they lived in a gigantic waterfront house. Everything always seemed easy for him, but looking back I never considered how different he must have felt sometimes. He never showed it though. His armor was an easy smile and quick wit, but over the course of our two-hour drive, I was able to wear him down and get him firmly on board with my theory that this was going to be the worst weeks of our lives. If I'd only know that would actually come true. I remember as Eric's mom turned off the highway, it was like we were entering another world. The trees were suddenly taller, long branches with broad leaves standing guard over this ancient green kingdom. A mile or two later we approached the entrance to the camp, a dirt field which gave way to well-trodden grass with the silhouettes of the cabins beyond. A permanent dust cloud hung over it. I remember Eric's mom being frustrated because no matter how much she cranked the windshield wipers a new film settled moments later. A kaleidoscope of metallic colors glinted through the swirling dust as cars arrived. I stared as kids my age and older, my size and bigger spilled out. Some looked hypnotized, in a state of disbelief of their current whereabouts, while others were loudly greeting friends from years gone by. And still others were sobbing. I watched one boy who oddly enough looked like me but with slightly longer hair. He locked himself in the car after his parents had gotten out. I never got to see how that self-hostage situation was resolved. Oh, and there were girls. It was a co-ed camp with fairly rigid separation as we would learn. 
I was in that awkward phase where a girlfriend was pretty much a rumor, but subconsciously my stance on the whole opposite sex issue began to soften about that time. Eric's mom ushered us out. As I was grabbing my backpack and duffel out of the trunk, I felt a sharp sting on the back of my neck. Initially I thought it was a bee and I'd already envisioned Eric's mom leaving with one passenger in tow due to a slight allergy to bee stings. But it wasn't. I heard Jimmy's unmistakable howl and turned to see my friend with a pondful of pebbles in his hand. That was Jimmy, all fun, all the time. He was smaller than Eric and I, but completely fearless. I'd seen him take on kids twice his size and win. As Eric and Jimmy's moms jabbered away, the three of us stood in the dust and for a moment, my fears slipped away and we seemed invincible. The three of us. Together. This camp didn't stand a chance. Eric's mom's goodbye went on entirely too long. I did miss not having my own mother to hug and assure me that it was going to be fun and someday I'd look back on this experience as a moment of change in growing up. One of those sentiments all these years later I wish I'd expressed to her more at the time. As the moms finally pulled away it did feel different. It somehow felt right. Like we were about to do something epic on our own. The cabins were split by a great lawn nearly a football field in length. Boys on one side, girls on the other, both divided by age. The counselors lined us up and cross-checked everyone's name on the list. A simmering anarchy rose over the field, veteran campers seeing one another again for the first time since last summer, new campers trying to find their place and counselors attempting not to lose their S in the first few hours. This was the around the time I first noticed her, not Allison R, from Cabin 6, my first real crush but the very tall girl standing at the back of the line, drifting near the edge of the woods as if she was trying to disappear back into them. I thought it was a maintenance worker or some other camp employee and frankly a man because of her sheer size. Her broad shoulders were hunched and she slouched as if she was trying to hide her odd proportions in all the chaos but she had to be over six feet tall, maybe more. Her shirt and pants were oversized and ill-fitting but you could still discern there was a solid frame beneath. She was built differently. She had a backpack double strapped tightly over her shoulders and the top met the length of her neatly cut hair. Something jutted out of the unfastened side of the pack. A doll of some kind. Eric elbowed me, he'd noticed her too. Holy yes, she's huge. I didn't respond. He and Jimmy shared a snicker, then moved on to other faces in the crowd. Everyone was sizing everyone else up, looking for commonality targeting difference. I couldn't take my eyes off the girl and eventually she must have felt it and met my stare. Even at that distance I froze, embarrassed, sure, but it was as if she'd come alive in that instant. She remained expressionless but there was just something powerful about her eyes. There was a story there. A story that wanted to be told. I quickly looked away but could feel her linger on me a moment as if she didn't want to break the connection. Out of the corner of my eye I saw her head lower again and she receded back into the crowd. I should have walked over and said hello or good morning. Introduced myself and asked how she was doing, where she was from. Anything. But I didn't. 
Our cabin had four other boys in it. One whose name I can't remember was our age, but the others were all 17 or 18. It wasn't long until a serious Lord of the Flies vibe set in. The ringleader was a kid named Corey. He sucked. It was like he'd gone to bullying school and graduated with honors already. The other idiots just fell in line with him and it was obvious they'd had a few summers together to sharpen their craft. The problem for them is they hadn't encountered a Jimmy before. I knew we had a secret weapon and part of me wanted them to just keep prodding it enough for it to explode and annihilate them. Things came to a head the first night. We'd gotten back from some boring orientation, meet your fellow camper thing and I was lying in my bottom bunk. Eric got stuck with the kid whose name I can't remember and Jimmy was above me. Given some downtime, thoughts about how bad I wanted to go home began to creep back into my head. I stared at the cracks in the bunk frame above me, started to find strange faces in them and was in the beginnings of a possible scenario where they might begin talking and perhaps even possess me to put me out of my misery, when a shadow fell over me. It was Corey and the idiots. They decided I was the weak link in the new herd and they were about to pounce. Hey F-Stick. That's your name, right? F-Stick? It was so predictable and generic. I really wanted to ask him if his mother was proud her son was dumber than a rock, but instead, instinct kicked in and I sat up and swung one leg out of bed, braced for what might be coming. My dad had taught me how to throw a punch and I'd wrestled for a few years so I knew how to handle myself, but I didn't want this fight. I didn't want most fights. I was okay with just letting it be. It was if they knew that and it was fueling them. Corey took my water bottle out of my bag opened the lid and soaked me. The idiots laughed, braying like hyenas. Did you like that, F-Stick? Then he was crumpled on the floor, bleeding. It all happened so fast. Jimmy had been watching from his perch above. Watching and waiting. He decided the water bottle crossed his red line and launched off the top bed. He delivered such a quick, explosive beating that the idiots didn't have time to react, let alone jump in. I got my ass out of bed too, just to make sure they didn't. Jimmy didn't say a thing, didn't gloat, he didn't need to. He just looked at the three of them and made it clear it would be worse next time if they decided to F with us again. Word did get back to the counselors of an incident, but Corey's bloody possibly broken nose was explained away as an unfortunate case of walking into a door face first. Things were just different back in the day. Seemed you could get away with more. Kids scraped their knees on the pavement, fell out of a tree, and broke their arms. They had scars. It wasn't that bad things didn't happen, the news just didn't travel as fast. I met Allison the next day. First kiss a few nights later, but this isn't about that. This is about telling you what really happened that summer, what they covered up. This is about Jane and what they drove her to do. I didn't know at the time, but it started before someone hung her doll from the big oak which marked the dividing line between the girls' and boys' cabins. Boys can be mean, but girls can be downright cruel. On the fourth or fifth day, we were on our way back from the field when kids started gathering on the great lawn. A low murmur rose interrupted by the occasional obnoxious cackle. 
Hanging from the lowest branch of the great oak was a two-foot doll. The face was strangely lifelike, not overly cherubic like most plastic toys, but elegantly carved and made with care. The long hair seemed real, finely threaded into what appeared to be a wooden scalp. The doll wore overalls, their stitching also expertly done. A rope had been tied around both her hands and looped over the bow, effectively hanging her like a medieval prisoner on the rack. We all stopped and stared. The angle the doll's head lolled gave it an almost ebbing life. Then the crowd began to part and I saw her head loom over everyone. Jane slowly walked to the tree. I was awestruck at the power of her stride. Something that size moving so effortlessly. Wordlessly, she reached up to the tall branch and untied the knot of the loop, let the doll ride the slack down into her other waiting hand. She looked it over, carefully. Meticulously. A girl yelled, is that your only friend, you freak? A wave of laughter swept through the crowd. Jane turned, gaze still on her doll. When she finally looked up, everyone fell into a hush. Her eyes were cold, unfeeling. Almost inhuman, like the eyes of a shark. She scanned the crowd, as if she knew who did it then silently walked back to her cabin. By this time the counselors intervened and everyone dispersed. I didn't know who did it but heard from Allison that one of the female counselors, a college girl named Tessa was in on it. She let the girls in her cabin drink and seemed more than happy to stir up trouble. We began to hear rumors about Jane, that her family owned some of the land the camp was on. That Jane wasn't her real name, that it was an alias because she committed some awful crime. That she lived in the woods and ate animals. That she killed her parents. That she was a circus freak that escaped. And on and on. But it seemed no one really knew anything about her, other than her name was Jane. I should have said I was sorry that happened to her and that kid sucks sometimes. I should have asked if she wanted to hang with me and Eric and Jimmy. I should have. But I didn't. The next night it got worse. We didn't see it happen but we heard the aftermath. Tessa and her underlings locked Jane in one of the bathrooms. There was a central hub for each set of cabins that had toilets and showers but there was also a single stall out near a maintenance shed. No one used it except the counselors and I don't know how they lured her in there. Maybe she just wanted some privacy and they followed her. We heard her deep, bellowing screams. Her fists pounding on the door. Her pleas for someone to please let her out. But no one did. By the time other counselors and campers arrived it was quiet. When they opened the door, the bathroom was empty. The back window was completely shattered and a few boards had been torn out creating a hole large enough to escape. At the time no one quite knew exactly what was going on and the counselors did their best to sequester us for the next day. A few of them partnered and searched for her on the campgrounds and as far as they dared go into the forest but there were no signs. Jane was gone. I'm sure calls were made to her parents and maybe the police, so we waited for someone to show up distraught, looking for her but no one did. It was as if she didn't exist. As if she didn't matter. Tessa went missing the next day. 
When she didn't show for breakfast, they checked her room and found a familiar doll sitting upright in her bed instead. One of the campers heard they found a fistful of hair with chunks of scalp still attached to it near the door, as if whoever took her simply dragged her by the hair like a rag doll. Things descended into chaos at that point. This time the police did show up. Parents did too, demanding answers. We all left in a matter of hours. My mom picked us up this time. I'd never been so happy to see her. Somehow, the news barely made the papers. But again, it was a different time. The owner of the camp had an in with some influential people and they managed to keep it mostly quiet. My best guess is money changed hands, probably more than a few times. A local reporter did some digging and there were records of Jane from one of the nearby elementary schools but they stopped after the third or fourth grade and it was impossible to match the schoolgirl photo to the Jane I knew. Police-led search parties deployed and they combed the forest. They found several huge old, ramshackle longhouses hidden miles within its depths. The ceilings that weren't collapsed were over 20 feet high. The skeletal remains of an adult male and female were discovered buried behind the main cabin in a makeshift graveyard. The skeletons were abnormally large and according to a third-hand account from the coroner several hundred years old with several peculiar anatomical anomalies. They also found the skeletons of three infants and four juveniles all with various defects. In the surrounding forest they found burial mounds. They were filled with animal bones. The bones were scraped with what apparently resembled human-like teeth marks. Only larger than any human tooth could leave behind. Allegedly, several tomes were recovered but none were officially recorded in any evidentiary findings. I've personally inquired about them and if they do exist, no one's talking. That same industrious local reporter alleged to have gotten a quick peek at one but was unable to transcribe more than a few notes. He never published his findings, but I contacted him a few years back and got him talking over a bottle of wine. The tomes were nearly indecipherable, written in an ancient language resembling Germanic, perhaps an offshoot of an early strain of Latin. But what he ranted about most was that they were cobbled with a peculiar runic text. He showed me his original notes. Strange symbols and words that just felt like they were from another time. A different, much older time. Eaton is the one that stuck with me. It's an early English word derived from the Norse, Jotun. It roughly translates to, giant. Eric, Jimmy, and I remained close, even after college. Eric eventually moved overseas, but Jimmy stayed local. A few years ago we got together and eventually talked about what happened. Talked about if we should've, if we could have done anything different to change it. A simple hello. A kind word may have changed everything. As close as we are I got the distinct impression neither wants to talk about it anymore. They've locked it away in some dark corner of their minds where the stuff we don't want to remember lies. And waits. Despite wanting to forget, I've kept close tabs on any new information that trickles out relating to the incident. The occasional missing person in the area makes me wonder if someone wandered too far off the beaten path. I tried driving out to the camp once, but they ran part of the highway across it and wilderness has somewhat filled in the rest.
The woods looked as old and deep as they were all those years ago. I quelled an urge to just wander off and see if she would find me. I think Jane's still out there, surviving. Watching. Waiting for her time to come again. Maybe she isn't as alone as we think she is. Who knows how long they've adapted to hide in plain sight like she did. But I always come back to the same haunting thought. It wasn't that I did something wrong, it was that I didn't do something right. I was looking out a second story window in the Sandian Hotel in Sandy. I was facing the north, toward the woods and the Columbia River beyond. Before I go any further, I'd like to emphasize that I am not sure that I actually heard a Bigfoot sound. I am mainly putting it on here because I have thought about it in depth, that's why the delay in reporting, and the only thing in my memory that has any resemblance at all to what I've heard is the past audio recordings of Bigfoot, although what I heard had better audio. I still wonder if this was a Bigfoot, how or why it would have been near a town, but I have no other explanations. I was in Sandy, Oregon with my family during the weekend of July 21st, 23, 2000. We were staying at the Sandy Inn, which is just west of the main part of town. It was hard to sleep the night of the 21st, it was very humid and some thunderstorms did move through about midnight or so. I was up several times during the night, either to shut the window, open the window, turn on the air conditioning, etc. I got up once around 3 or so in the morning on the 22nd after the storms passed. I was sticking my head out of our second story window, enjoying some cool air and kind of looking off into the woods toward the north. There was not a sound anywhere that I could hear. No cars on the highway, nothing. Then I heard a very indescribable sound. I thought at first it was tires screeching, but as the seconds passed I realized the car would have to be burning rubber for a long ways. Then as I kinda cleared my head, I thought it sounded like a man screaming, or better yet, wailing. But I've never heard a human do a sound like that either. It was not a moan or howling with an O sound, it was more like IE IE. Very high pitched. It won't do me much good to try to interpret the sound in letters. But the way the pitch of the sound went up and down so fast, I've never heard any animal or human do that, and I've heard quite a lot of animals. If a human did what I heard, they'd bust their vocal cords. It went on for about 20 seconds maybe a little longer, but not sure of that. It did seem to kind of trail off at one point then come back. I know it was long enough for me to get a good listen. It was not close by either. The window faced toward the north, so it's possible that's where it came from but I can't be sure of that. It seemed like it was off in the distance somewhere. When it started, it was rather quiet, and ended trailing off in the same manner it started. Even though I was a bit groggy, it was weird enough to wake me up and even scare me a bit. I didn't think too much of it at the time but the next morning I was thinking to myself, what was that? I didn't report it or consider that until now because I wasn't sure and after a while I honestly had forgotten about it until something in my mind triggered it again. All I can say is, if it wasn't a Bigfoot, fine. But please tell me what it was.
My wife and I were on our honeymoon in Shenandoah Valley National Park in Virginia in 2019. We were excited to get an early evening hike in as we'd just arrived in town. We were driving to a hike on Skyline Drive at around 6 p.m. in a thick mist with overcast skies. We passed a strange-looking, solitary man on the road a few hundred yards before the trailhead. I made a comment to my wife about how odd he looked, unkempt, vacant-looking, etc. We hiked up 1.5 miles up the mountain to the end of the trail where it terminated at the AT. My wife stopped to pee and we collected ourselves before we turned to head back down towards our vehicle. Out of the mist, not making this up, came the guy we'd passed on the road earlier. He was low-key brandishing one of those combination hatchets slash hammer multi-tools at his side. He wasn't just carrying it, it was somewhat raised. It gets creepier. He made a comment as we passed him about how he had found a set of teeth the last time he was up there. We made an awkward acknowledgement of what he'd said, nervous laugh, and then quickly started down towards our vehicle, looking back up to where we'd come to see if he'd turned to follow us. Once we were 100 feet away, we began running down the mountain. We'd stop every minute or so to listen or observe what was going on. It was terrifying. We asterisk obviously made it back to our car. But we were shook. We would read a few weeks later about how someone had been arrested in connection with a killing near that area when we were in that area. I've worked as a paramedic or firefighter for 10 plus years, and I always laugh when people tell me I'm crazy for hunting in the middle of nowhere, be afraid of animals, etc. I always laugh and tell them the crap I've seen people do always worries me more than the mostly predictable behavior of animals. I have two stories, one hunting, one non. I'll tell the hunting as it's the thread. I live in upstate New York and we frequently get lied to about what kind of animals are here. The local DEC has a long history of introducing predators and denying their existence until it's blatantly obvious. So this year my dad and I are bow hunting. We meet up and are walking out just before dark, just wanted to do an afternoon stock hunt together like when I was a kid. I was lead and coming over a knoll that I have shot a lot of nice deer out of, including a good buck last year. Suddenly my dad, who is steps behind me is hissing coyote, I turn and look and I can't see anything. He then tells me you're looking right at it in my mind I'm looking for a coyote like I've seen my whole life. Scraggly narrow face with brownish white colors. The first thing I saw was the eyes. Wild, yellow eyes connected to a black face with a huge head and almost silver mane. I grew up with German shepherds and this dog was easily 90-100 plus pounds, not 30-40 pounds like most of the coyotes I've encountered, but was most certainly not a house pet. We also were miles from anyone's house and on private land. I've never had an animal look at me like that before. It was not afraid and definitely was sizing me up. More predatory than I've ever had a black bear look at me. So as I was changing arrows, was not about to send a $35 iron will at it. My bow release hit my bow limb and the loud metallic clang and sent the dog running. We both stood for a moment not saying anything and my dad goes you're gonna think I'm crazy, but I think that was. A wolf I finished his sentence before he could. 
My dad said he was watching a pine lot just to our left and saw the dog coming running out at us, stopping about 40 yards away. I never even heard the thing. It was as though it was hunting us, not just a random encounter where we crossed paths. I told a few co-workers about it and they all said I was crazy, then a few weeks later my buddy sent me this picture of a guy he knows that hunts about 20 minutes from I was. DEC told him it was a koi dog. I'm not so sure about that. You guys have more experience with wolves than I do, but to me, that looks like what I saw, and that is a wolf in my book. Once my friend and I were heading from Venice to Punta Gorda in my old Dodge minivan. Simple enough drive, but it goes through a part of central Florida which is almost completely empty, because that fit late night road trip to deliver AQP and less cops. We drove on these non-lined roads, and when we came to where we were supposed to meet with buddy of mine, that road had a police roadblock. In the middle of but F nowhere. F definitely can't go that way, so we detour around some roads in an attempt to get there another way. Big mistake is we were running low on gas, I swear we were below E the entire time. The road we took to get away from the cops ended up being around you have to drive about 70 miles to the even get to the next street. I should also mention these roads are absolutely straight for the most part and we haven't seen another car besides the cops for an hour. No giant turns and if anything there were just spots of woodland that gave into giant open fields that extended for miles in all directions. As we're coming around this small bend out of a woodland area into a field we see a big rig traveling normal speed and we're going to catch up to him I realize. We're probably about a mile behind him but we can still see the headlights and everything. As we go around another slight bend in the field we lose sight of him until we come up to the straightaway. Except that when we got to the straightaway there was no trucker. There was no truck anywhere to be seen. This isn't a type of place where you can just pull off the side behind some trees and be lost to an observer. There were no trees or anything to hide a giant big rig. It was an open field and this giant truck absolutely vanished without a trace. There was no possible explanation and both my friend and I were super spooked and made haste to get the F out of there. Finally somehow made it to Lafayette and there was a gas station open, thank Christ. Filled up got the F out of there and delivered our bag with much sketchiness, but if you're ever driving out in Punta Gorda at 2 in the morning, don't. I used to have about an hour-long commute home through a very rural area. One particular evening, part of the main road I always took was closed, so there was a detour down a one-lane gravel road. The last stretch before you reach the highway again is perfectly straight, and there is nothing but perfectly flat fields on either side of the road for the better part of a mile. Also, this road isn't really elevated above the level of the fields on either side. And the fields were empty at that time. Flat. It wasn't completely dark yet, but very nearly, clear sky, and it was a dead still night. I was about to start slowing down, when I saw something to the left side of the road coming toward the road. It looked wispy, and I couldn't quite make out what it was. 
Then it seemed to jump in a smooth arc, straight over the roadway, maybe a foot or two high. And the only way I can describe it is, it looked like a ghost fox. Like it wasn't solid and left sort of a smoky trail behind it. I stopped immediately and looked out to the right in the direction it had gone, and there was nothing. I can still see it in my mind, clear as day. I think it must have been just the perfect storm for me to have a mild hallucination. Only thing I can figure. Just a random thing that happened in my brain. My first though afterward was a piece of clear plastic blowing in the wind, and my brain distorted it, but there was no wind and there was nothing there immediately after. Also, it didn't happen that fast, and I had a moment to take it in, and... Ghost Fox. That's what I saw. I don't believe that's what it was.